campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning, sports fans. Good morning, statistics fans. Good morning, business fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. And I'm here this morning with my co-host, professor of statistics, Adi Weiner. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen, are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 Eastern, replayed throughout the week here on Sirius XM 132. And you can pick us up on your our podcast up on your favorite location, iTunes, SoundCloud, etc. And of course, Adi, this is a call-in show, which means you, the fan, can join in. Actually, I have, I'm hoping we get lots of conversation about a topic I have this morning. You can easily call in at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And of course, we were already active this morning on Twitter, at WMoneyBall, because at WMoneyBall never sleeps. It doesn't, although the, the, the traffic this morning was very light, so I think this very is not, light. A, not too many car listeners. Well, that means like there's usually... lots of people. At, that's true. <laughs> not as many car listeners maybe this morning, but we can have lots of people call into the show. And again, that's one eight four four Wharton. So how are you this morning, Adi? I'm very good. I'm looking to get back in the swing of things. This has been a, uh, it's a tough week. I know my father-in-law passed away, and which put me a little outside of the sports world. The little time that I had this week, I devoted to some students and their projects, but I didn't get, I didn't get a chance to see anything. But I'm trying to catch up quickly. Well, the good news, as our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball know, um, I'm constantly watching sports <laughs> yes. all the time, and so I've got a lot that's caught my eye in sports. So what I thought I would do this morning, Adi, since in, obviously in our first half hour, we have our Caught Our Eye in Sports segment. Uh, we have uh, Seth Partnow from the, um, formerly of the Milwaukee Bucks in the bottom of that hour, and then we have Neil Payne from 538 at the top of the 9 o'clock hour, and then, of course, we'll do our Moneyball matchups in the last half hour. But what I thought I would do is I thought I would just throw out a bunch of sports. I've got eight different topics, and I'll just let you pick one. So the first one is tennis. I got something about tennis that caught my eye. NFL, NBA. There's always something. NBA, of course. College football, another NBA, NFL, MLB, and college basketball. So I got a lot of them this morning. Okay, well, my, you know my proclivities, and whenever we get together, we talk about MLB. But I'm going to put off that just for a moment, because the last time I was in the studio, you made a... Uh, a interesting observation about tennis and that we might be actually seeing a turnover at the top of the of the men's ranking and there seems to be some new blood in the system but i have not followed so i wanted to hear what you have to say about tennis so there's my choice well the thing i was going to talk about about tennis is actually about the design of something but i'll talk about te- let me just talk about tennis what happened briefly. with the, with well, the, with the, the tournament and- so at the year-end tournament something very interesting happened so first of all, um, to the degree he could, Roger Federer got his revenge for Wimbledon. You remember what happened at Wimbledon. He had two match points on his serve against That's Djokovic. Right. And, and, and he basically said before the ATP finals, um, he was actually in Djokovic's part of the draw. It's a round robin in the first part yeah. and then knockout. It came down to him versus Djokovic. And so he said all the chips are in. This is my, I don't want to say it the revenge tour, but he said this is he's it. all in. So he beat Djokovic 6-2, 6-3. So then he advanced to the next round and actually lost. So neither Nadal, who didn't make it to the knockout round either, Nadal and Djokovic didn't make it to the knockout round, and Federer made it to the knockout round but then was beaten. So the final, the person that won, was Stefano Tsitsipas, Tsitsipas yes. from Greece. Mm-hmm. Very accomplished, good player. 
I think this is the year finally. Someone's going to break through. Where someone's going to break through. But again, here's the challenge. But this is when I was. Was it Warinka as the last one? Who was the. the, the... Yes, Warinka, okay. exactly. So these are the two. Warinka, by the way, Warinka looks healthy. Mm-hmm. Andy Murray, who's also got three majors, says he's healthy. So let me just comment. Here's the problem. So you just. It's not what I want to talk about about tennis. I'll get to it in a second. You've got five players in the draw who. You're going to probably have to beat three or four of them. Absolutely. So here's Two the sides, problem. Yeah. It's not so much that I don't think Sitsipas or Dominic Thiem or Alexander Zverev or you know all the different top players. It's not that they can't be beaten on any given day. I just don't think you can beat three of them, and that's the challenge. It's why the men's you know 58 of the last 62 or three majors have gone to Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic because you can't beat more than one of them. Maybe on a given day your you maximum. Beat. But you can't beat three but of them. But now you're talking about a crew of players, not just one, but maybe well, three or four. But that's Who why could do it, and I think we'll maybe see a turnover. Or, but or, these guys are old. I mean, at what point does father time catch up? Well, the thing is, they're, I mean, they're old, but I mean, Federer's old for tennis. Yeah, he's yes. 38. So they're he's old he, for tennis. Well, 33 and 32. He's old for I, tennis. I mean, maybe because we have Connors in our mind. Yeah, but <laughs> maybe in the, in the past days. But let me tell you what the topic I wanted to talk to you about. So this last weekend was something very interesting, something we remember well as kids, which was Davis Cup. Yes, of course. But there's a reason I want to talk about it. Not the outcome, but by the way, just for our listeners that want to know, Spain won. Nadal won all of his matches, but that's not the thing I want to talk about. It's an interesting statistical question. So the Davis Cup matches used to be best three out of five. They've changed it to best two out of three. It used to be you'd play two singles matches, a doubles match, and then what's called reverse singles, so it would be best of five, but four singles and a doubles. Now, it's just two singles and one doubles. Also, it's all in one day. So I started to wonder, who does this favor? Does, is, it, is this distributing the likelihood, or is it more concentrating it? So let me tell you the why I thought of this as an interesting statistical problem. On the one hand, a better team has, probably has better players, more depth, So they have a better chance of winning five matches. A worse team, you just need one good player who can win their singles match and possibly play well in doubles. So from that point of view, you can imagine it favors a team that might have one good player but not a total. Two of three matches, who does that favor? Does it favor the stronger player who can put all of his effort into a couple of sets? Or does it favor the weaker player because now I don't have to beat Nadal or Djokovic in best of five? So I just wanted to know, in your mind... The new design, let me just repeat, it used to be three matches out of five you had to win. Now it's best of three. The matches themselves used to be best of five. Now they're best of three. In your mind, does this make it more likely that an underdog would win or less likely? Well, at least two of those aspects make it more likely and one against it. So the more likely is the shorter. I think you pointed that out. And also the the favor is one great player as opposed to depth. And that's that's those two. On the other hand, you, you point out shorter gives you the advantage of putting all your energy in. And that's the thing that I, I that consider a wild one. card. I don't understand that. I mean, one of the things that, that, that is becoming more and more important is the concept of rest and how that plays out in your future performance and how the concentration of energy can help you win a game. We see this in basketball. I think this is the big question mark for the future, how much how much of pacing and load management will handle will be in, interfering in, in the course of a season. Well, just, and how does that work in tennis? Well, just to show you what yeah. happened, there was one of the matches. Remember I told you, they have, according to the rules, they have to all play in one day. 
there was a match that ended at 4.05 a.m. 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 <laughs> because the match started at midnight. Like, yeah. you couldn't say, well, we'll play it the next. That was against the rules. So I was just wondering. I agree with you. There are these counterbalancing forces, and especially the one about, well, if I only know if I have to play best of three, doesn't that make it? I mean, look, let's just take it to the one variable. If Nadal or Djokovic or Federer knew the match was best of three, which you know in advance, on the one hand, you only have to beat them two sets. But on the other hand, they can be the peak Federer, the peak Djokovic, that's the right. peak Nadal for two sets. And, and this is the question so which one, mark. Well, that's my the, question I mean, the thing to is, you. you gotta, I feel like I don't know enough about the behavior. Now, I would want to look at the data. Does this hold up? Is, is the peak Federer for... Is is that that this phenomenon that you're, we'll label it? We'll call it peak power. Is peak power in tennis a decisive factor, or is it just a, a secondary uh, valuation? And therefore, the better player wants to play three out of five. The, and I don't know the answer to that. But let me just ask you, Chris. Let's just turn it on to basketball a minute because this is a question. Do you believe peak power in basketball is more important than the longevity? Um, yes, I do. I think I think basketball players can only play at their peak for a certain number of minutes. That's right. My concern, as I mentioned at the beginning of the season, although I've been proven so wrong, it's not even funny, is that LeBron James. The problem with LeBron now is His peak power. I thought he can no. only right. He can only be LeBron for short periods of time right now. Well, I was wrong. And secondly, um, good news is this is why he wants to play with Anthony Davis, not just because he likes the guy's game. But he can basically be peak LeBron for eight minutes, the only eight minutes of the game that count. And the rest of the game, they'll just coast along, let Anthony Davis carry the load, and then LeBron will bring it home in the last Although six or I eight minutes. Although I will point out that baskets count the same at every point throughout I, I, the I, game. I, I, I know you like that. So I always wonder about, so about do runs, how, do know, how do you know the eight minutes that matter? I don't know, that, that's the part that I don't get. Well, what I, think, what I think you do agree with the following. There are points in the game that have higher leverage Absolutely. than others. That's right. And so what LeBron can do is to say, and this is the point, LeBron doesn't know when they're going to happen. He, he, nobody knows. But if it's going to be at the end of the game, he now has he the has peak a, power to, to actually Yeah, okay. So it is, do, it's load management within a game. Which, but, within a game. But the problem is, and this is what I've always pointed out to people who do this with, with baseball and runs count at any point, is that it's just as effective to stay out of a, a close situation as it is to do well when you're in it. Right. He'd rather be up 20 and not have <laughs> yeah. to use the peak power. <laughs> right. So this is Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. And I'm here with my friend and co-host this morning, professor of statistics, Adi Weiner. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Well, let's move on. Actually, I'm going to pick one. I'm okay, going to pick, we'll, we'll alternate. Well, I'm going to pick. <laughs> I'm going to pick MLB, but I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the data on a pitcher, and I want you to tell me how much value you think this pitcher has. Okay. Or all right. Look, all right. So, or is this You're a, not going to tell me the pitcher? Or, I'm not, okay. I'm not going to tell you yet. I'm going to tell you eventually. So this pitcher um, will be turning thirty years old. In terms of career, this person's got the 260th best career ERA of any pitcher that's pitched, okay? The at, f- by age 30 or at any at, just in career? If you took this person's career now and compared it to okay. everybody's career ERA, the 260th, the 51st best win-loss record, okay? Not a percentage, percentage, yep, yep, yep. percentage. Um, excellent strikeout rate, 10.1 per nine innings. Um, in terms of war, the person has pitched seven seasons, not that surprising given they're 29 or 30, and has a combined war of 23 in seven seasons. So is this to you, let's imagine, is this a $50 million pitcher to you, $100 million pitcher, $200 million pitcher? Just trying to get your assessment. 
And by the way, I'm using a summary. I'm you using are a using summary. a summary because a lot of uh, it's very easy to have a one, two war career and then you follow that up with a seven, eight and you're extremely valuable. So the way you got to your 23 really matters. Well, to I me. will tell you the person's had essentially five threes and two sixes. Okay, so two sixes is, is, is very impressive. I mean, it really, really is. It's one of the top talent. To me, uh, so the problem that I have with 30-year-old pitchers is, is not quite the same problem that I have with 30-year-old center fielders, which is don't hire a 30-year-old center fielder unless he happens to be named Mike Trout. But he was even 37. He was like 27 or right, 26. Right, 27, yeah. Um, but this, of course, we're watching the, uh, the Yankees-Ellsbury deal go down well, the so toilet. Do you want, are you going to tell me I'm how I'm going to tell you in a minute. All I'm, right. So I think he's worth – I think this pitcher is worth $30 million for the next two or three years, right, but right. I wouldn't. I wouldn't sign three hundred for ten. Not even close. Right, right. Um, this, so, this, this pitcher's Garrett Cole. Yeah, by the that's why I, I, I knew that. I mean, I had high, high. Yeah, right. And in fact, they're talking about Garrett Cole at a thirty million. And my observation was, pay him thirty to forty for the next two or three, but you back end that. You know, whatever it takes to get him, but hide the money. Almost the way we the money was hidden with Bryce Harper, right. where four hundred million dollars over like some ridiculous thirteen years, yeah, three twenty five. Right. No, it's, actually, yeah. it's that deal is fine. It's fine because it's so back ended and and it's it's great. We're, you're paying a lot of money for the next five. Look, you would rather. Year, I way. think you'd agree. You'd rather give Garrett Cole four years and a hundred and fifty million than ten years and three hundred. Unquestionably, absolutely. I mean, I don't think we're going to get value out of Garrett Cole after the first four years. I mean, he might. I mean, listen, this is a game of probabilities, but I think he's the type of pitcher that will has a significant probability of eroding deeply as does he gets into Does it concern you at all? I mean, maybe, you actually talked about this. Good, we do this as statisticians. If I had told you he had seven years of three war each, that wouldn't have been as impressive to you Not as at all. five twos right. and a five and a six. Mm-hmm. Do you have any concern that you know? Small samples. Maybe these two years are an aberration. Maybe he's going to go back to I five do have twos. Forget that his I trajectory. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you plot you plot small number of data points and you look at it and you start a statistician. I come up with this joke. We start seeing trajectories and things that aren't really there. Mm-hmm. How confident are you that you're going to get the five and six Garrett Cole for the next four or five years? Well, I'm I'm fairly confident we're going to get the f- the four to five Garrett Cole. I wouldn't be so confident to be the six seven. Can you give our Cole. listeners here on Morton Money Bill since you do study this? How just what does the distribution of war for pitchers look like? Like as a six and seven, just phenomenal. Yes. Okay. Just straight up, it's phenomenal. Now, one of the things about war for pitchers is that it's a very a, a war for all players, and this is one of the reasons why I've never been a huge fan. Is that war is not a counting stat; it's an estimate. Now, let me let our listeners understand yeah, the difference. What do you mean by that? So, a counting stat are strikeouts, even fancy things like uh, like. You know, whip or or things that you can create from the things that you observe are counting steps. Yeah, let's be clear. It's an actual observable. You just That's compute right. it. It's got a formula. That's you right. just compute it directly. I mean, maybe, War has a formula, but oh yes, it does have no, a formula. It does, but nobody knows it. I mean, it's really it's it's a very it's 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 a secret formula. All right. So what's your what's your concern okay, about so war? The, the concern is that what you're trying to do is estimate, and there are two ways to do this. So there's two versions of war, and I don't know which one you were giving me. Fangraphs war is essentially your based on underlying value, uh, underlying observations like your strikeout rates. It does not look at your actual runs. It looks at your walks. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, not based on ERA. By the way, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz. As always, Fangraphs war last year for Garrett Cole was 7.4, and that put him first in the league. Yes. So, and that makes sense because his peripherals, his strikeout rates and things like that. DeGrom 7, by the way, just right. to give you a sense. Uh, is, uh, is better than what he actually did on the field. So, baseball perspectives war is based on what you did in the field. 
And then Fangraph's wars are based on peripherals. So if you get very unlucky and lots of balls that put in, in play turn it to be hits, then you can get a very bad baseball perspective war and a very good Fangraph's war. But all of them are estimates. They fundamentally are. And they carry some big problems because they are based on season-level stats and, and, uh, and pitching is a game-by-game phenomenon. But just to give you a sense of the distribution, 7, 8, 9, 10 are extraordinary seasons. Extraordinary seasons. Uh, a very good, solid pitcher is 2 to 4. Okay. So excellent, he, excellent. So I don't excellent think anyone's going to doubt the last couple of years. He's yep. been much more than a good pitcher. He's been an excellent pitcher. That's right. Has let me ask. I, I don't know. Maybe you and I should look at this. Maybe it's something for our assistant producer Zach Drapkin to look at. Has anyone ever had, except for let's call it Sandy Koufax, maybe Clayton Kershaw for a short period? Has anyone ever had five or six consecutive seasons, given the wear and tear? of what you would consider six war and above. Like, the, the, does somebody get that? Like, you say you're going to get four or five more seasons. Well, there have been other Not great six pitchers. six or seven. I don't think. Other than the, the real greats, epic great pitchers. Like, maybe Pedro Martinez during a stretch. During maybe stretch, Sandy Koufax, Koufax during, during a stretch. stretch. Seven war and above is very, very, very is rare. It's well, let me ask you a question. Does, would you expect the phenomenon, we talk about this all the time here on Wharton Moneyball, Does mean reversion and regression to the mean, would we expect that phenomenon to hold? Like, in other words, just for our listeners, um, Garrett Cole is really a five-war pitcher. Just things went his way. He overperformed. He's not really a seven. He got a seven. But, you know, my my basic theory, the famous equation, observed war equals true war plus error. So he's really truly a five. He got a couple of positive residuals this year. Next year, he might be a three. Doesn't mean he's not good. It just means next year maybe he gets a negative two residual. Do you uh, think that could happen? Not only do I think that could happen, that would be my pre- forecast. I would expect him to regress down to the towards the mean to a three to five year rather than a five to seven. By year. the way, how do you like the following pitcher? I won't tell you his name. I'll give you the, his WAR during his best six years. Okay, six point three, five point seven, nine point two, six point one, ten, nine point one. Not bad, right? Unbelievable. Yeah, that's Sandy Koufax. Yeah. Unbelievable. Hitting 10 by itself, but hitting 9 and 10 a few years. <laughs> Three rough. out of four years. Yeah, nine, ridiculous. six, ten, nine. Yeah, yeah. So either way, that's... I uh, think Clayton Kershaw is, is, is competitive in that score. Would, be, would yeah. be competitive. The only reason I was doing that was I was just thinking, are they really thinking of giving him 10 years? So I've got another... Oh, so you get to pick now again. So we've done tennis. We've done a little bit of baseball. You've got NFL. You've got NBA, college football, college basketball. What do you think? Okay, well, let's do NFL. Let's see what you got for NFL. All right, well, this I've got two, but I've got an interesting one here. Who who said the following quote? In and it's coach. It's a coach in the NFL. In game analytics is just not something we think is best for our team. That's just our approach. We don't use analytics. I thought it wasn't that Belichick who said something of that nature. It, he didn't it, say that exactly. Not, but no, okay, this is not. He Belichick. said I use use analytics well, less than zero. Or well, something. I'll give you, so I know you didn't watch a lot of football this week, but this is why the question came up to this coach. I'll just tell you, it's Jason Garrett of the Cowboys, and I'll tell you the reason why. My son Zach, not Zach Drapkin, but Zach Bradlow, sent me this quote. The Patriots were ahead. I think the score was thirteen to six. I'm sure it was with about five minutes left. The Cowboys were fourth and six or seven from the Patriot 15 and decided to kick the field goal. To lose the game, which is exactly what they did. Correct. And they lost the game 13-9. to And so all of the analytics said, you go for it. And Jason Garrett said, well, if it had been fourth and three or four, we would have gone for it. And we're thinking... You're kidding, What is right? he working out? I mean, this is why... this is He's absurd. working out... Did that, you work out the probabilities? Because if he goes... How many, how many minutes left in the game? It's about five minutes left. And by the way, let me just comment. 
to his credit, but this is you can't worry about the outcome fact. The Cowboys did get the ball back with about two and a half minutes left and were driving down the field and a bad penalty set them back and they lost the game thirteen to nine. They did end up losing the game thirteen to nine. Um But all they would have needed to do is get a touchdown to tie. No, no, I understand. If they had gone for it and they're to fifteen. I understand that. I just don't see it. Well, the odds are, you know, what's, I mean, you could just do the math. What are the odds of going for it on fourth and six? You don't go for it. His worry then is that they're going to drive down the field and kick a field yeah, goal. But I'm thinking, if they drive down the field, the time's done anyway. Course, you so lose me, the so, game. So let's, let's put numbers to this, and maybe we don't have them handy, and we'll get Zach just, to produce let's do them. Some, let's do some so, so what envelope is, so, so if they, what is the win probability if they go for it compared to the win probability if they decide to kick the field well, goal, let's which they it. could miss, by well, the way. Absolutely. Right. So what is what are the two? Uh, but tr- tr- actually, the real craziness about it is it's essentially irrelevant if you think about it. Making or missing that field goal is irrelevant to that. Well, it's ir- th- but he doesn't. Re- that's the point. He doesn't realize it's irrelevant because he's worried that they're going to get the ball back, kick a field goal, and then they'll be down by you know ten points. But the point is, if they drive down the field with only five minutes left. It's called time. There's yeah, no time there's left no time. on the clock. It's irrelevant. It just seemed like, I mean, literally, I'm, read, I'm reading you verbatim his quote. In-game analytics is just not something we think is best for our NFL team. That's just not our approach. So what is the approach? I mean, that's the, this well, is the question. The, what are you using if you're not using analytics? That, that's my question. I didn't, I, look, I wasn't there at the interview with Jason Garrett. Let yeah. me go in there and interview him. Matt, put, get Jason Garrett yeah, on here on. I mean, I'll ask is, him. This is the thing that I think is very sad about the way people typically approach sort of data analysis is they don't ask the question, what is replacing data analysis? Think about that's this, That's a great right? question. If you're not using data analysis, then what are you using? And the answer almost invariably is gut or instinct or nothing. And that, to me, is the tragedy of this because it is a better choice than anything that you can use to replace it. It doesn't solve all problems by any measure. You don't have complete information. Its models are not perfect. But it's better than anything else. I think your insight here, though, that I hadn't, you know, I hadn't thought about. I just wrote it down that we would talk about it. But your insight, which I think is interesting, is that field goals almost irrelevant in the sense of the only thing that's not making irrelevant, or missing it. I know, is, no, no, the only no, the only anything. well, it changes one thing. If you stop them and get the ball back and you score a touchdown, now you win the game as opposed to tie the game and go to overtime. But trust me, he's not thinking that far ahead. It's pretty much a worthless field goal. The part you made that's relevant is that the minute, if the Patriots drive all the way down the field, trust me, they're going to use more than four or five minutes on the clock, yeah. and they're not going to have any time left anyway. Absolutely. And then, and then, by the way, this is maybe, let's even say they do that, and you get it back with a minute and a half left. Which would you rather have the ball? This is a question. We can actually look at the stats. Would you rather have the ball fourth and sixth from the New England 15, or would you rather have the ball first and 10 from your own 20? I think I'd rather have it fourth and sixth from the. 15. I would too. I mean, basically, you're looking for a completed pass. I mean, maybe it's harder at 15 yards out than it is from midfield, but I don't think it's that. It's that unlikely to convert a fourth and six. By the way, the other thing that I thought was shocking this week in the NFL, and I'm pretty sure I actually just because he's a former Buck, I like him, Booger McFarlane, who does the announcing on the games. There was a play. Listen to this. This part. I, I should have tweeted. I apologize to all of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. I should have tweeted it at W Moneyball. I, I don't remember. Let's say it's Seattle. I don't remember the team. They had the ball third and five from the 12-yard line or something like that. And they got a false start penalty, so now it's third and 10. And Booger McFarlane was like, They've just raised their chances of, com- of making this first down. I'm thinking, What, what the hell is Booger <laughs> McFarlane talking about? There's more space now, and the defense can't crowd them in as much. I'm like, 
Are you out of your mind? <laughs> really? I said, why don't... All right, so teams should do this all the time, right? Like yeah, if take they're penalties. Down, like take, a, take an intentional <laughs> yeah, penalty take down a delay the of end game, zone. Right? Isn't that, isn't that yeah, do it take a delay of game, take a false start, <laughs> right. snap the ball when the, nobody else is ready. Right. I'm thinking, he can't really mean what he just said. Oh, I understand. God. So, no, he's trying to... Count, look, I, I understand what he's saying. He's, he's saying, saying, saying that there is a little bit of value in the... More space. You, that, but it's not worth the penalty. I mean, it's absurd. I know, but also it gets to a different point in statistics that, and this is not just statistics, it's the way I think about it in business. Let's say someone's coming in for a job talk and they point out that um, firms should raise prices when this happens. And I'm like, okay, that's a nice theory. Then the natural question I ask is, okay, so I believe firms are not doing this now. Firms are trying to maximize profits. Can you explain to me why no firms are doing what you say despite your theory or model says it's optimal because what kind of answer do you get to that it's a very strange do you get they're dumb or they haven't thought about it they don't have yeah, the data so you, or, right what, what you, do they say yeah or, what you typically get is well that's what my paper's about it's about firm optimality and i said okay i i'm willing to buy that i understand that maybe you're thinking about it a little bit differently but they're in the firm maximization the profit maximization business the, and, the, and pricing is the thing they think about more than anything so it, right? it's hard for me to believe that they haven't thought about doing what you're suggesting and nobody's doing it if it's if the effect size is as big as you say it absolutely. is absolutely and what you're doing is you're asking them to take the other side right which is the crux of science absolutely get in the shoes of the other person and try to beat beat down your own theory well let me I'll so I'll pick a topic now I well, I sort of picked this one too but you you picked NFL I'll pick this one too so something happened in college basketball last night that w- was the so let me say i, I was, just heard from know, you from yeah so <laughs> what happened is i i always you know tell I, us, tell I, us well, first is. of all i don't sleep much i'm up in the middle of the night all of a sudden i'm looking at the sports scores so i'm trying to get ready for preparing here for wharton moneyball and i see something on my screen that i'm thinking first it's a mistake and then i'm thinking i don't even exactly know who this other team is i knew who they are because i've heard of the university but i saw this score on my phone it says sfa 85 Duke, number one next to it, number one ranked team in the country, 83. So the first thing I'm thinking is, like, well, this can't be men's college basketball. This has to be some other sport. What do you think it is? Tennis? (laughs) No, I'm thinking maybe it's women's basketball where I don't know if Duke is a great team or not or something. And then I realize SFA is Stephen F. Austin, a school I've heard of. um, And they played Duke at Cameron Indoor, at Duke's Arena. Let's be clear. Not on the road. Not at Stephen F. Austin. At Duke, they were the largest underdog, according to ESPN stats, that has ever defeated a team. So they were a 27.5-point underdog going into the game. Okay, now here's my question. How did they do it? And if I were to forecast how they did it, they did it with lots of threes. So that's a good question. Matt can look up on the stat. He's looking up right now on the stat line how they did it. Because I'll- the only way an underdog can beat a, a significantly better favorite team would be by taking chances well let me just tell you i saw extremely extremely good shooting i mean something has to be a deviation right i mean there's a probability basketball is a game of of repeated trials and a a lot and a lot of them and and it's extremely unlikely that if you toss a coin 100 times you get 65 heads that's three standard deviations and one one or two out of a thousand so i'm going to refute one thing no no this is what thanks for this stat matt so this should be very concerning for duke okay very Mm -hmm. not just they lost the game Suppose I told you Stephen F. Austin was two for ten from three, which oh. is the fact. That's the data. So they got beaten. Now, another stat Matt put up for me, Duke had 22 turnovers in the game. So that's not good. 
That can lead to a lot of points. But it's basically but that's no. Signal. Stephen F's Austin. Look, Mike Shefty said after the game, you know, we wanted to win the game, but we didn't deserve. They were the better team. Now, this is the number one team in the nation saying Stephen F. Austin was the better team. Duke was 5 for 15 for 3. So it's not like they were 0 for nope. 30. Yeah. I mean, 5 for 15, you know, effective field goal well, percentage. Well, I think 20. Give me just, can you give me some context? 22 turnovers seems to be many significant standard errors, if you will, larger than expected it's in a game. It's extraordinarily high. I, I don't know the numbers. Stephen F. Austin had 14. Um, it's extraordinarily high, remember, because college basketball, let's start, is, is like in the NBA, that would be considered extraordinarily high. And the NBA is a 48-minute game. College is a 40-minute game. So let's just start with that. Yep. So that, well, let's just do a little math. It's basically you're turning the ball over once every two minutes. Yep. In college Faster basketball, that, yeah. fa- slightly faster than once every two minutes, there's a 35-second clock in college basketball. So how many possessions are you getting in the game? Like, are you turning it over? That might be something like, I'm just thinking of a rate. It could be one out of every three or three and a half possessions, so a third of the time to a quarter of the time, so you're, you're basically turning the ball giving over. Your, so it's a race to get total number of points, and you're giving your opponent many more shots than you're taking well, yourself. That's, that it ha- I, I, so, Matt so, will put up the stat in a second. It has to be that Stephen S. Austin just took, I'll make it up, maybe they took 80 shots and Duke took 60. Yep. And which would you rather have, 80 or 60? Right, so, so Duke, which lost by two, in put, overtime, in over, put together better offensive stats after adjusting for the number of turnovers, but just gave up the ball so many times. Now, the question is, what does that say, right? So so I always like to think about in sports what actually on-field occurrences predict future value or future observations. And I would guess very high or swings in um, on-field, say, shooting percentage is not predictive. I'm going to change quickly, but I, I saw that just last week uh, Joel Embiid Scored zero points. In it a game. wasn't just last week. It was two days. It was ago. two days ago. And I'm going to tell you. Well, we'll get zero to points. Six. But to me, that's not predictive of the future because there's just large swings and a game where you get out there and you just miss all your shots is not necessarily mean anything to, for the future in my book. But what does it mean to, for a team to give up that many turnovers? Does that say something about the team that we're missing? And we're not misvalued? just that, which is you know, it, obviously since Stephen F. Austin, as we said, two for ten from three. They're scoring from twos and from the line. By the way, Matt's given me lots of stats that are informative. Duke was 24 of 40 from the line, so they only shot 60% from the line. So that's another another five to seven points you've probably... I mean, just if they shoot 75% at the line, they make 30. That's six points they gave up right there. And you figure turnovers. So you probably figure they... I don't want to say gave, because... Stephen S. Austin had something to do with it. They're not the Duke missing at the line. Not the line. But they may have given the other team the effectiveness of 15 to 20 points in that yep. game. And so... Yep. there's got, yeah, Listen, you look, hindsight explains everything, right? So the question is, which of these things in the will, says something about Duke in the future? What would you rank right, Duke well, now? Well, here we I go. Mean, that's the real question. Well, here we go, by the way, and then we'll wrap up this first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Stephen F. Austin had 74 shots in the game. Duke... 54 yeah, shots in the game. Yeah. So that's going to be the great equalizer. That's great. Now, before we, we take our break, I want to ask you, I pointed out the Joel Embiid. I think he missed every free throw. He had to have missed yes, every free throw. Yes, he did. So how many did he miss? Seven or six? No, or... no, it was four or five. Oh, four. But what's funny is okay. about four minutes left in the game, the there was a technical foul or something on um, Toronto. So they put Embiid at the line because they knew he scored zero, and he missed that free throw. So I was like, 
this is really not his day. Like, they just want to get him. I mean, a, he's a 75 to 85% free throw shooter, I think. He's, he's a, a very good free throw shooter. So that shooter. would put him at 85. That's very good. No, he was a very good free to throw miss shooter. To that many, seems No, no. It just he had a really, well, <laughs> okay. well, we all have bad days, but not here on Wharton Moneyball. So this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. we got three quarters to go. Stay with us and join us after the break. We're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my friend, co-host, and professor of statistics, Adi Weiner, some combination of the two of us. Cade Massey and Shane Jensen are here live every Wednesday morning, every Wednesday morning, even Thanksgiving week, every week, here on Sirius XM 132. So, Adi, I've always said that one of the great joys of being here on Wharton Moneyball is we get to interview people that are actually doing analytics in the wild, as they say, analytics out in the field. And our next guest, Seth Partnow, is no exception. Uh, Seth covers the NBA and basketball analytics for The Athletic. He resides in Milwaukee, was the director of basketball research for the Milwaukee Bucks until this last offseason. And you can follow him on Twitter at at Seth Partnow. Uh, Seth, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with uh, Adi Weiner. Yes, welcome back, Seth. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's great to have you. And so, you know, the first thing I'm sure everyone's going to ask is, you know, since you were both inside with an NBA team and now you're kind of outside like the rest of us, um, how is the, what's the view like? What's the knowledge base? How do you think about the league differently from an outsider position, let's call it, to an insider position? Sure. It's, it's, um, I think this is a question that people ask a lot, as you said, and the way I've always described it is, you know, from an outside perspective, uh, problems are two-dimensional, and from an inside perspective, they're three-dimensional because the the personalities, the different sort of uh, kind of background intelligence, the the medical, the the you know the the day-to-day personalities of the people in the team, how that's fitting, all, all these things that kind of go into a decision that you just don't have visibility in. Well, we call the them the outside. intangibles, I think, outside the team. I, okay, I mean they're they're very tangible. I can say from experience. Yeah. But, well, but let me yeah. ask you. Let me ask you a question on this, Seth. Do you mean something like the following? So you know we're a business show too. So let's imagine I'm trying to evaluate a candidate, and I can read their papers, and I can look at their resume, and I can decide. I can have the person come in and give a talk. But it's different than having someone in the building. Is that what you're referring to? To kind of the three dimensional versus two dimensional nature. Sure, and it's also you know you you know it, like in the context of you're looking to acquire a player, you you know you talk to ex teammates, you talk to ex coaches, you you know uh, to even even like beat reporters uh, who covered him in in in, in uh, college or or earlier in his pro career to kind of get a sense of you know is this is this person uh, gonna gonna fit well here? And, right. You know the the, the and that's the same for you know. It's it's checking references essentially. Can can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because basically, what you're saying is that those of us from the outside who might just look at the how the player has performed and look at his statistics, his analytics, that might not be sufficient for a team to want to uh, to sign a player or use the player because of these things from which from the outside look very intangible. That's what I meant. We don't have that data, sure. and you're saying from the inside, you know enough about it that it actually isn't um, unmeasurable. Um, it's. It's knowable whether it's measurable. That's a whole, you know, then you're getting into kind of stuff like, you know, natural language processing of scouting reports and stuff like that, which is, um, 
you know, pe- people have been trying that for a number of years, both publicly and, you know, internally. And the degree to which it works, kind of who knows, but it's it's something people are always trying to do. So it's it's definitely, it's tangible, but the measurable part of it is, you know, from, from our standpoint, it, it's hard to put that on the same scale as like a value over replacement model. Well, that's what I was like going to, that. that's what I was going to ask you. Like how much weight do you put on that? Or right. is it more of, in some sense, it's just a threshold model, which is, you know, once someone's above some threshold of, let's call it effort, you get good references from the person, then yeah, you know, the person could be Mr. Squeaky Clean, but being Mr. Squeaky Clean isn't any better than being good. And then once a person's above a certain level, then it's what's his performance on the actual court. Is that how you think about it? Uh, in general, I think I'm, I kind of uh, the way it's usually talked about is like 10% of the guys are going to be incredible no matter the situation. 10% are going to be the, uh, the, the kind of the term in the league is knuckleheads, and 90% are kind of are going to kind of go with which direction the room goes. And so that's you know, and then also that's you know the the there's also the question of is the juice worth worth the squeeze if you know you're acquiring a, a superstar player. There's a lot more kind of uh, flags you're you're kind of willing to, to to countenance versus the guy who's going to be the fifteenth man because that's you know that's a uh, that's sort of more of a be seen not heard kind of kind of role. So could you talk now that you're at the Atlantic? How do you kind of you know I'm sure athletic, everybody the wants athletic. To, yeah, the athletic sorry the athletic <laughs> the, the athletic place nice too, too. that's a different that's a conference <laughs> in basketball uh, the athletic how do you decide what to write on? How, like, how do you, you know, of all the things you could choose to write on about, let's say, the NBA, how do you decide, you know, how do you pick and choose, given the large variety of things that could be interesting to readers? Um, in some ways, Twitter is a tremendous resource for that, because it's kind of, you get a sense of sort of the zeitgeist of what people are, what people are interested in, what people are talking about, and just kind of interactions. People, you know, people uh, ask me questions, and sometimes they're, you know, sometimes I have the answer readily because it's research I've already done or it's something that's just kind of out of the box available. But sometimes it's, oh, that's interesting. And then just, you know, from uh, one of the one of the really kind of neat things about being at The Athletic is since we have such a broad range of, of writers, you know, across markets and, and nationally is like they come to me with, with, with questions and we kind of collaborate on stuff. And those are, those are sort of... It, in some ways, it's a similar process. Like uh, one of my, I, I really enjoyed recently doing kind of a Q and A with our uh, Orlando Magic beat writer, and that's someone who's on the ground every day and kind of sees these sort of, you know, what you're describing as intangible things. And okay, this is kind of what I'm seeing being around. How is that borne out in kind of the more, uh, I don't want to say objective, but the more measurable kind of. Uh, performance data. Well, let me and ask you, you a question. Kind of, let me ask you a question yeah. about the Orlando Magic. So, you know, we obviously had a player that we traded a huge amount of capital for. We traded, you know, up for the number one pick to draft Markel Fultz here in Philadelphia. You know, we're sitting here at the Wharton School in Philadelphia, and we traded, you know, the three pick, the I think the Sacramento Kings pick to move up to number one. How are they thinking about Markel Fultz today? Are they? Does that seem? Did you uh, any thoughts on that as a player, or anything that you talked to him about? Um, I think that that at least from my perspective, uh, he's, he's Markel Fultz is kind of there. Uh, the Magic are in that situation where teams kind of end up where they get to a certain level of of kind of of, of competence, and then their players get paid, and then they're kind of locked into a team that's just okay. Uh, and but having you know, despite his kind of well chronicled, and I'm sure you. You in in Philadelphia know it better than most. Kind of his well chronicled kind of 
uh, in mysterious struggles, like Fultz is, is, is the guy with the talent that if kind of everything clicks, kind of possibly raises them to another uh, uh, kind of another echelon because top end talent matters tremendously uh, in, in the NBA. And it's kind of, especially once you get to that kind of middle ground, it's sort of, it's hard to add that. And, and, you know, so it's, you know, to, to go into a different field. I mean, it's kind of, it's a distressed asset. If it, if, if everything works well, it's massively more valuable than what you paid for it from the, from the magic standpoint. Well, let's now that. Yeah. Let's talk uh, about that. Cause you, I know you've yeah. done a lot of work on, or a lot of thinking about teams that tank and everything else. As you mentioned, um, it's kind of where the Sixers were a number of years ago, which is we were in no man's land. We weren't going to win the title. We had some good players, Andre Guadalla, Michael Carter-Williams, stuff like that. But, you know, in some sense, you're not going to get the top-end talent through the draft. You're not bad enough. You're not good enough. And so, in some sense, you're kind of in the middle. Can you tell me how, both with your time with the Bucks, but also now with the Athletic, how do you think about teams that are kind of caught in this middle ground where it's going to be really hard to get top-end talent? Uh, the, the, the dirty secret is it's hard to get top-end talent almost no matter where you are. Um, that's the, they're just, I mean, it's kind of definitionally, there isn't much of it around. There's, you know, you know, they're depending on, on where we are and kind of the, the historical era, there's, you know, between three and seven, like really top players at any given time, give or take. Uh, and, and, you know, simple math that, that means, you know, at, at most a quarter of the league has one of those guys. So you know, the odds are against you no matter what. Now, that said, unless you're in, you know, certain kind of specific markets, like the way you acquire that is generally, um, you know, with some exceptions, you can trade for them. But uh, it was, the, the Raptors kind of showed last year. But the, the other way is through the draft. And, you know, the draft is kind of very uh, random. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the like Giannis Antetokounmpo was the 15th overall pick. And, and, and But at the same time, you, you just – demonstrably you have the best chance of getting that player yeah, one and two are really much better <laughs> on yeah, average yeah yeah so okay. here so seth i wanted to ask you a question because uh yeah. um eric has brought up tanking and then you just brought up you need there's a three to seven x superstars and you need one to win i i was I've been away from sports for for about a week and i'm just trying to get back in it and the basketball season is what 16 17 games in roughly yeah. roughly and i'm starting to feel like it's over and this is a, is and that if you really try to forecast who's going to be in the you know the certainly the top half of the uh, of the playoffs and the top it's kind of done. Is this a, your sense as well? We kind of really know the the basically the outlines of the playoffs already, or am I just uh, just off base? Um, you're not wrong, but at the same time, it's uh, it's much more wide open than it's been any time in the last decade. Like we know who we have a pretty good sense of who, barring injuries, the top teams are, and there's just more of them than there have been uh, in the past. Like you could, you know, realistically, you could you could pencil. Okay, the Golden State Warriors are minimum making the conference finals each of the last five years. Like yes, LeBron right, was right. in the NBA finals and was the overwhelming favorite to be there for eight straight years. Well, this so, just means that the playoffs is going to be much more fun this year because it's not going to be one or two teams sort of dominating. But I, right. I'm asking the question, is: do we kind of know who's making the playoffs? And who, at this point, I mean, what are we fighting? What is the rest of the season going to mean? I think that's sort of the... that, that What does the regular season mean is, is sort of the 
uh, almost an, uh, a meta, uh, an existential crisis that's you know, okay. facing the NBA as a whole right now because you know it's yeah, 82 games is is very good at determining, possibly too good at determining like who the the, the ordering of teams and and uh, and you could probably get away with with doing it in less games uh, in terms of of identifying who deserves to be in the playoffs and and the rough order of them. Uh, and then, and obviously, with that number of games in, across the time span, then you get into like the the, the load management and resting players and, and stars sitting out games, and and that becomes a thing. Like we've we've kind of been, it's been talked about a ton so far this year. So let me ask you another question. One of the players that uh, has emerged this year very differently is Luka Doncic. So how do you view his game? Um, obviously, you know. 20 years old, but really been a pro for, well, seven years. Um, how, how do you think his game has evolved, and how do you think does it shift the, if you'd like, how does it shift the power in the West at all? Is Dallas now, are they, you know, obviously they also have Porzingis now. Are they a two-star team, and are they a th- real threat in the West? I think it's probably a year early for them to be a real threat. Um, this is sort of, uh, this is sort of Porzingis' gap year almost uh, as he as he works his way back from the ACL injury, uh, and he's been uh, I, I don't want to say disappointing because uh, you, you, if you have a, appropriate expectations for a player who hasn't played after a serious injury for a year, usually the first year back is you know what do I have? What uh, like what uh, you know the, the commonly describe these things as sort of two-year injuries. The first year you don't play, the second year you figure out how to play again. Uh, and that's sort of where, uh, that, that's that's kind of where Porzingis is going to be next year. Um, so might have a better sense of that next year. And then um, while, you know, we talk about the importance of those top X players, everyone else around them also matters a lot. And I think Dallas probably has some work to do in terms of, of surrounding uh, Doncic and, and hopefully Porzingis with with kind of the right cast to allow them to to compete with kind of the Clippers and Lakers uh, of the world. So we're here talking to Seth Partnow. Seth covers the NBA and basketball analytics for The Athletic. He resides in Milwaukee, was the former director of basketball research for Milwaukee Bucks, and you could follow him on Twitter at, at Seth Partnow. So Seth, let me ask you, you've written uh, recently about, if you'd like, taking offense from good to great. What does that mean from good to great? How do you measure it? How do you know when some team has gone from good to great? And kind of how does a team actually implement that? So that was in the context of, of you know, it's been a topic for who knows, five years of, of how many more three-pointers are being shot. And and kind of just looking, digging into where teams are really, like, improving uh, their, their offense or where their offense is going. It, taking more threes kind of replaces some of the, the really inefficient shots from mid-range, but where teams in general seem like they get to get really good shots is getting all the way to the basket. It's kind of uh, what's, what's old is new. Uh, getting, like, dunks are good. Uh, and, and I know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, but but um, it, it, uh, it, it's sort of a... a you know, a complimentary thing where requiring a team to defend you at the three-point line possibly uh, opens up space for for uh, for people to get to the rim. Well, actually, according to the let me just say, Seth, I, 
it's yeah. just according to the laws of physics, it's true. I mean, if you have guys that have to cover two feet farther out, there's no yeah. question that's going to leave more space for guys to drive and get into the lanes. Yeah, especially since the area goes as the square of the distance. It's well, a that, terrific observation. That, that's true, too. <laughs> but, yeah, so how yeah, so how are you thinking about good to great teams? Do you see teams loading up on three-point shooters, or do you see teams kind of striking that balance? Um, I think the best teams are somewhat striking that balance. Um, it's I, I I don't think that we have 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 you know for as much as as much as the Warriors got credit for being a a deep shooting team. It's also they got a lot of layups. Like and that's you know one of the you know one of Steph Curry's underrated skills was in addition to his you know deep range and ability to shoot off the dribble, he's a tremendous finisher at the basket. So that when you, uh, when you, especially for his size, so when you would pressure up on him, he could drive by you and get to the basket. And like, you know, as good a three-point shooter as he was, a layup was still a better shot for him. Um, so I, I think that in many ways, I don't want to say the three-pointer is a decoy, but it's kind of it, it's it, it's the, the the sort of the teaser that allows you to, as you said, create the space to have people get to the basket for really high-value shots. Related to that, you've also uh, thought about and written a lot about defense. So how do we think about that in the league today? Is is it harder to contribute defensively? Is it harder to measure? I mean, obviously we have motion tracking today, so in some sense we don't even have to be outcome-based. We can just know how close was Eric Bradlow covering the person. So how do you think about measuring defense today and how that's changed, possibly with technology and motion tracking? So the, the, the motion tracking in some ways makes it harder because what that's doing, and, and I kind of enjoyed writing that particular piece, uh, is you're, you're mostly measuring defense by how you, what you're doing defensively is affecting what the offense is doing. You're, you're sort of looking for evidence of absence almost. And, but as offensive decision-making changes, it's, it's a moving target. Um, it, it, it used to be, and still to, to a large degree is, if you want to take away the three-pointer, uh, you don't look at the, the the percentage the opposing team has shot because that's from the standpoint of a defense largely random. Uh, you look at whether they shot or they, they they shot the ball at all. If I'm close enough to bother your shot from a percentage basis, I'm probably also close enough that you're you're going to do something else with the ball. That's changing. Uh, uh, players are becoming much more aggressive in terms of, and and some teams more than others, but becoming much more aggressive in, okay, you're kind of close to me, but I'm going to shoot it anyway. It's still an okay shot, even with, you know, kind of mild levels of, of defensive pressure. And so what would previously have been, okay, I'm close enough, so he's not going to take the shot because it's just an okay shot. Now he's shooting it. So how do I measure, first of all, do, do, what do I think of that outcome of the possession, a guy taking a, you know, a semi-contested three? Is that good defensive possession or is it a bad defensive possession? Um, you know, in in the past, if the guy shot the three, I could probably say, okay, I, we did something poorly on defense. And now that's not necessarily the case anymore. So it's much harder to figure out the, how effective a defense has been in terms of forcing the offense into taking shots that the defense would prefer. Seth, just from an analytical perspective, isn't yeah. the data available that tells you how much pressure at the time of the shot and where it is to evaluate? Yes. You know, so that's, that should adjust. You should be able to adjust for that and use analytically. Yeah, you, you can adjust for that, but, but what I'm saying is that using that, the, pro, the profile of the, the shooting decisions that players are making is becoming more aggressive. Mm-hmm. So they are more willing to take the shot 
it with higher degrees of pressure. Uh, and, and and are they better at making that, them? Not really. Okay. But it's it, but it's these are these are these are kind of okay shots. These are at like with league wide kind of a semi contested three is an averageish shot. Um, and so uh, from a defensive perspective, how do you feel about giving up an averageish shot on a possession? And I don't really know the answer to that. And that's that. But since that's a shot offenses are willing to take now and they weren't necessarily before, it changes how you evaluate the whole thing. So, Seth, we only have about 30 seconds left. Um, sure. As, you know, I don't, hopefully we'll have you on again during this season, but how do you see the season playing out? Who do you like this year? Uh, I think, I mean, we, we saw the, the Clippers were extremely impressive again last night uh, against, uh, against the, uh, the Mavs and, and, and Luka Doncic. And I, like, just from a talent and, and, and top-end talent perspective, I think they're the team to beat but it's much more wide open than it has been at any time in probably the last eight or nine years. It's interesting. I, I, first of all, I think I agree with that. What's interesting about that is I don't think either one of us would consider Kawhi Leonard or Paul George kind of like an offensive first kind of guy. So they're going to be built around defense, and um, we'll see what happens. But it's I agree with you. It's wide open in lots of different ways. Yeah, I, I think Kawhi has developed into kind of a, a much more of an offensive terror than he was earlier in his career. But they, they, they both still are ex, extremely proficient defenders. Well, Seth, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. We've been talking to Seth sure. Part now. Seth covers the NBA and basketball analytics for the Athletics, formerly of the Milwaukee Bucks, and you can follow him on Twitter at, at Seth Partnow. So this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball, which means we have a lot half to go. We're going to be talking to Neil Payne from 538. We're going to be doing our Moneyball matchups. Stay with us, and we'll talk to you soon here on Wharton Moneyball. Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host and friend, professor of statistics Adi Weiner. Some combination of us, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen, are every Wednesday morning live from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM 132. If you want to join the conversation, and the next conversation you may definitely want to join, you can call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Adi, while, of course, there are really only four of us hosting Wharton Moneyball, our next guest you could almost treat, given the the number of the frequency with which we have him on, the amount that he's contributed to and our show. And his history with Philadelphia. Right, and his history. An studio uh, guest. I'm, I'm with you. He, he might as well be our fifth host, and that's Neil Payne. Neil is a senior sports writer for 538. He previously has written for the ESPN Insider, the New York Times, sportsreference.com. He's consulted in the NBA. Neil, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with Adi Weiner. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. It's always a uh, warm welcome when I come onto the show with you guys. Well, obviously, we're huge fans of everything that's going on at 538. And in some sense, you know, you guys have now carry the mantle of popularizing uh, 
Moneyball and statistics right. and its application in obviously not just sports, but also in business, politics, etc. So we owe you a great sense of debt. And it's being modeled and copied by other other organizations. I mean, the Wall Street Journal uses data, New York Times and The Athletic is big on it. You guys are the leaders. Well, of course. Well, uh, Neil worked for a lot of those. <laughs> yeah, well, we're glad to have you on. Now, let's get right into it. Obviously, one of the big things in the news and something you've uh, recently did a podcast on is the Houston Astro, Astro situation, stealing signs. Um, you know, can you summarize for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball? So what did you learn from the podcast and how are you thinking about this? Well, sure. So uh, for those that uh, haven't really been following, so the Astros have been accused of stealing signs, uh, especially with regard to what pitch is coming. Basically, they're accused of having somebody with a camera uh, in the outfield sort of peering in at what the catcher is, is putting down and then signaling that to someone in the dugout who then bangs on a trash can or I, I think is the uh, is the apparatus. <laughs> or a whistle. They, uh, I thought it was a whistle. Or a whistle, yeah. Like the, uh, they've also talked about like this high uh, high pitch noise, but basically something signaling to the batter, basically whether it would be a fastball or some kind of off speed pitch coming, which then they would theoretically use to kind of have this insider knowledge and, and be able to hit the ball better. And if, uh, if if true, and there's been some kind of compelling clips that I've seen out there, one particularly against the White Sox uh, in in 2017. Uh, where you can clearly make out the the noise of of the the trash can banging uh, from the dugout when a changeup is uh, signaled by the catcher to the point that uh, the the pitcher for the White Sox, I think it was Danny uh, Farquhar, had to basically change the signs and and kind of have a have a summit on the mound with uh, with the catcher to to because he knew that they were stealing the signs and so it's being done in a way that's much faster than uh in in the past i mean sign stealing as you guys know has been a part of baseball since forever the very of course. beginning yeah. uh, forever but i think the new component here is just the the use of technology which um you know they're they're trying to skirt this rule about technology not being able to be used in the dugout but they you know uh, it's being conveyed through this uh you know at a speed that's way beyond what you could do uh just you know say there's a runner on second and and you've decoded the the signs and he somehow signals it to the batter or you're watching on tv off the network feed in the in the clubhouse and and trying to decode the signs that way that's a little bit different than this because this is being done uh, like at the speed between when the pitch type is being called and then the pitch comes in. And I think that is sort of what has uh, offended a lot of people about this. That and the fact that the Astros were kind of already on thin ice with uh, in terms of public perception after the incident with the assistant GM uh, and his sexist comments during the uh, uh, ALCS. And the fact that the Astros just have this reputation as being sort of the rule benders or, you know, uh, the, the type of organization that might not be uh, have, a, have a problem crossing the line of, of fair play to get an advantage. Don't you think, let me ask a question, Neil, don't you think just in the same way that, let's call it, in this case, technology and maybe analytics can, you know, help you cheat in some way, don't you also think it can help you get caught? For example, if one now retrospectively goes back 
and looks at the performance of the Astros against certain pitchers, my guess is you'll see lots of residual variation that can't be explained. It won't exist for other teams. So how do you think about, in some sense, you know, I'll call it the good side of analytics and technology, but also the one that, you know, it's hard to cheat now that you've got data. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, it makes me think about how they can kind of – you know, uh, uh, I think of tennis mat- match fixing uh, that you see a lot of times in, in Europe. They have people that are watching the feeds of uh, betting in real time. And, and when there's a suspicious spike in, you know, kind of the activity, it's actually a red flag as to uh, cheating happening in terms of fixing matches. And they've caught people on the basis of that, or at least it's been something to look at. So I think that that's something similar here where you can use data to kind of track, uh, you know, if, if you see abnormalities, uh, at least know what to investigate. But what's interesting with this Astros thing is that the data on whether it helped necessarily is a little bit more inconclusive because the Astros in 2017, they started this uh, pattern that they've continued over the past few years of drastically reducing their strikeout rate, which you think would be consistent with a team that knew what kind of pitch was coming, at least, you know. Lay off the changeup, yeah. Right, exactly, yeah. You can kind of sit fastball and and react to the off-speed a lot more effectively. You don't even have to react if if you know that it's coming necessarily. Um, But there have been some studies that looked at, okay, well, we assume that they're doing this more often at home or maybe only at home. We don't necessarily know how uh, how prevalent it was in that regard, but it would be much easier to do it without being caught. Uh, and, and they have done that, um, uh, at least allegedly, for, for years. Uh, so we would assume that if you look at the home road splits on something like strikeout rate or even just uh, weighted runs created plus, you would find some pattern where they improved. And they really did improve at home, but they also improved even more on the road uh, compared with, you know, their projections or the previous season uh, in, in from 2016 going into 2017. And so to me, that kind of cast a little bit of like, well, we don't know how much it was helping. Uh, uh, maybe they just have really good players, you know, uh, and, and we've seen the talent that they've been able to kind of produce. So, you can start digging and diving into the data uh, as deep as you want to, and you'll find some signs uh, that, that can kind of show like, oh, this is suspicious. But then you'll also find some things where it's like, eh, we don't really even know if it was happening. And then also, was it having a tangible benefit? I like your point, Neil, that it's you certainly have to look at all the evidence. And, you know, we can't just cherry pick statistics that say, well, it shows this. If you look at the totality, some evidence will be for, some will be against. Yeah. So, so Neil, I want to throw a few other things, observations out. One of the things I noticed that, you know, the, the Astros were caught setting up cameras even on the road. That was a couple years ago. In fact, MLB responded by changing the rules for staff. It used to be that a staff could wander around the, the, the stadium and sit wherever they wanted during the game. But they they made an important shift. I think it was in two eighteen uh, that you can't do that anymore. If you if you're a, if you work for a team, you just cannot be out there. You have to you have you, you can't do it. And that this was and there, that yeah. was in response to some of the stuff with the the Yankees and the Red Sox too, right? That right. Was, um, uh, they had sort of this war of 
technology and also sign stealing accusations. I remember, but you know, but sign stealing is is legal. I mean, that, that should just get that out there. So it's you're allowed to steal signs. You're just not allowed to use technology to do it. You could use the right. TV, but there must be, I guess, it's about a six or seven right. second delay. So it's almost impossible. So what I wanted to ask you is, what is the evidence? What is the hard evidence that we have? One piece of evidence that I saw. Obviously, you listen to the garbage can, but and the whistling. But as Eric points out, that's cherry picking to me. You really need a, a lot of data. They've done really, really well, but that's could could because they're good. So do we have any hard evidence? Well, you know, so Rob Arthur, who was a, a, a colleague of mine at 538 and now works for Baseball Prospectus, he did look at sort of the audio patterns and, and tried to kind of find spikes in uh, uh, actual, you know, kind of uh, audio data from broadcasts of Astro games around the time Mm-hmm. And when they, in 2017, when they were accused of uh, of starting this, so I think there are some things that you can do to try to kind of uh, get more than just an anecdotal uh, record of of some of this stuff happening. But you know, to you guys' larger point, there's there's just so much that you still have to process. I think, and, and we're kind of in the early stages of of this investigation. And I'm sure that MLB is kind of combing over everything that they can to try to figure out, first of all, you know, prove it uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, and then also try to figure out what the punishment should be uh, after that. Because this is a black eye, you know, this, we're talking about a team that won the World Series. Now, granted, it was, you know, several years ago. It's not like they freshly won the World Series. Well, but still, they were in it this year, and they eliminated the Yankees. <laughs> they did, yeah. Uh, and, and so... I think that um, it, it is kind of a black eye uh, in taken with the totality of all of the other stuff that's kind of going on with that organization. Well, we have at least five more sports to talk to you about, so let me move on to the next one. So let's talk about the okay. NFL. Um, two things I want you to say just ain't so. One is the great Aaron Rodgers maybe is slipping a little bit, and number two, maybe Carson Wentz not is, so not, good. is not so good. <laughs> so I know you've done some work on both of these. Could you talk to us uh, a little bit about both of those? Break our hearts in Philly. Well, the, Aaron Rodgers not being as great as he no, was. we don't care about that one. But well, I sort of care because, okay. you know, we're talking about, in many people's eyes, maybe the greatest quarterback who's ever played. So what are you? how are you seeing both Rodgers and Wentz? Well, so, yeah, Rodgers, it's, it's part of a multi-year uh, pattern, I think, with him that, uh, you know, when when he was at his best, and winning the Super Bowl, uh, he was legitimately one of the best, not only one of the most talented quarterbacks of all time, because we've all seen the kind of throws that he can make, uh, that I think just about nobody else, maybe Pat Mahomes is the only one that kind of comes to mind that can do some of the stuff that, that Rodgers could do in his prime. Uh, but also statistically, you know, you kind of see it show up. Uh, now I think he's at a little bit of a level below that, uh, this season, for instance, we, we have this ELO rating um, for, for quarterbacks that we keep. So we now have an adjustment that we make to a team's kind of baseline rating uh, based on how who their quarterback is and how well he's been playing, essentially. So it comes in really handy for people who, you know, Aaron Rodgers in, I think it was, was it 2017 when he missed um, huge chunks of the season and the Packers had Brett Hundley come in at quarterback we could kind of uh if if our current system was in place then we could measure just how much that hurts the packers uh but it's also useful just it gives us a measure of quarterback performance that's kind of predictive that we can track over time and it updates after every game 
So Aaron Rodgers this season has he he's really been kind of average aside from a few huge games. He had this massive game against Oakland uh, about a month ago. Uh, he's he also terrorized the Eagles in a game earlier this season. But overall, he's been above average, but not uh, at the same level that uh, we're kind of used to thinking of him as maybe from as recently as the 2016 postseason or something like that, you know, when he was uh, really truly one of the, the top quarterbacks in the game. And, in fact, we think that Rodgers had three straight below-average games and, and actually pretty bad games uh, right now. Uh, so even when it looked like he was kind of turning this corner toward um, going back to the Rodgers of old, uh, it, it was kind of short-lived. Certainly not a great game against San Francisco, that is for sure. How are you? Yeah. How are you seeing uh, Carson Wentz? Because you know everybody here in Philadelphia is um, concerned. I mean, we're five and six. Wentz seemed to have missed. You know, seems to be missing lots of open receivers. Um, not that you know he's basically throwing to Adi and me. It's not like he's got great receivers out there now. <laughs> but I mean, there are still throws that I don't care who you're throwing to. Um, that you should, you should be, be hitting. Yeah, well, I was watching so, those. Yeah. yeah. So how are people thinking? How statistically, analytically, are you evaluating Wentz right now? Yeah. So he he looks worse than Rodgers uh, in, in terms of our ELO rating. And we have him down now as being basically an average quarterback, which was kind of unthinkable um, at the end of that MVP caliber season that he was having in uh, 2017. And it really persisted into the first half of 2018 as well. He, he was looking like, um, you know, one of the truly elite quarterbacks. And the Eagles were looking like maybe they would repeat as champs uh, with him or, you know, not uh, that the Nick Foles run that they had wasn't a fluke. But he's all over the place since about midseason 2018. And and he has been dealing with, like you guys alluded to, uh, a reduced supporting cast especially a receiver and just, you know, the offensive weapons around him, uh, not what they were. But basically since uh, the 10th game of the 2018 season, so around midseason 2018, uh, and, and not including the time that he missed at the end of last season, uh, he has been a below-average quarterback on average when we're looking at his, his starts in our ELO rating system. And so, I mean, that's like a significant sample of games. That's, that's almost a year's worth. Yeah, it's almost a, yeah, it's a year's about. worth of games. Yeah, that he really had not been uh, uh, an elite or even like a good quarterback for a while outside of a few, you know, pretty good starts. So I'm a little worried about that uh, as as a uh, as an Eagles fan, just about the fact that, you know, th- this team, I think it really goes to show that you never really have as long of a window uh, as, as you think you do when you're a championship caliber team and you have, even when you have an elite quarterback or someone that seems like they're elite, uh, I think both Rodgers, maybe to a lesser extent, because they have the Packers have bounced back this season compared with the past couple seasons, uh, even if Rodgers you know, is having not as good numbers as in his prime, uh, but especially the Eagles, where you know, it's no guarantee, even if you have a quarterback of that level of reputation and, and seem to have the talent to compete for the Super Bowl, that you're you're going to have a, a great season. So, Neil, I wanted I wanted to follow this up because, as from an analytic perspective, 
I want to know why, what is Wentz doing wrong? So Eric pointed out that the receivers are not there. So if you're going to say he's an, a, an average or below average quarterback at this point, I want to know how you're accounting for the fact he doesn't have anyone to throw with, if you are at all. And second of all, Wentz is young. I mean, so everything I know about career trajectory suggests that he shouldn't be reverting to me to you know we saw him enough to know that he's above average quarterback we would not expect this at least analytically so can you dig in a little bit and say well have you adjusted for the fact that he has no one to throw with and if he has if he truly is like kind of mediocre at this point what what is he doing wrong sure so well first of all he's not that young he uh, this is his age 27 season uh okay. so he'll, he'll turn uh he'll turn 27 on December 30th, for instance. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much the peak age for quarterbacks. And maybe we have to adjust that a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking historically, of course, in an era where Tom Brady is playing to 43 and, and <laughs> yeah. is getting up there and, and some of these other guys, maybe we do have to kind of adjust what we think of as being the peak age for a quarterback. But I still think it's fair that uh, to expect that at age 27, someone would have one of, if not their very best season, and we're not seeing that so far. It, it, you guys know it's tough in football to account for supporting cast for anyone, uh, even for quarterbacks who we have sort of the most detailed data on. But the thing that, that kind of stands out to me about Wentz is that he seems to be kind of fixating on trying to make the big play. Uh, and his his numbers on that those long throws are not quite – really what you would expect his touchdown percentage is much lower than it was several years ago and again this is difficult to disentangle from the quality of receivers uh and maybe there's something there where if there was a more legitimate deep threat he could uh make better passes on those plays but the thing that another thing that's disturbing and maybe more disturbing for him is that he doesn't really take the easy play, the short yardage play that might turn into something, you know, three yards after the catch or, uh, you know, a design that, that might allow him to kind of move the chains and at least get positive expected value out of a play. Instead, he really has been kind of forcing these, these long uh, throws. He'll hold the ball too long, take sacks. Uh, and so I think those are things that we, we don't think of sacks as necessarily being a quarterback stat always, but there's a lot of evidence that shows that sack rate is one of the most persistent things about a quarterback when you're when you're looking at them over time, and so is completion percentage. And uh, he's been kind of subpar in both of those categories. Uh, and, and when you mix that with the lack of big plays, uh, you're just kind of left with an average quarterback. You, you got to be giving us something in one of these categories, right? Right. Yeah. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. We're talking to Neil Payne, senior sports writer for 538. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Let's talk about the opposite end of the spectrum on the quarterback spectrum right now, which is Lamar Jackson. So, I mean, I'm not even sure what to say except, wow. Can I say, as a, where did he come from? How come I missed this until this season? Well, what do you mean, where did he come from? He came from Louisville. He came no, from Louisville, and he won the Heisman, didn't he? Didn't Lamar Jackson win the Heisman? I'm pretty sure he won the Heisman. 
Yeah, a, a matter of fact, but we, I, he was never in the conversation with Mahomes and no. So he was. Well, so this, that's, well that's what I want to talk Baker to Mayfield. I, I, yeah, I want to talk yeah. to. Well, Baker Mayfield was the number one pick in the draft. I think Lamar Jackson was taken thirtieth, maybe by mm-hmm. the Ravens at the end of the end of the first round. People were even discussing That's should right. he even be a first rounder. So what are you thinking well, of? Let's talk about second overall. He was the thirty second pick of the first round. Yeah, thirty second. So what do you see in Lamar Jackson? And also, uh, we'll, we have to talk about the eliteness this so far this year of Dak Prescott. What are you seeing out of the two of them? Well, yeah, so for Lamar Jackson, uh, first of all, this is one of the most improved quarterback performances from one season to the next that I think has ever happened in NFL history. It's difficult to remember now, but if we're thinking back to his season last year, he was one of the worst passers in the league. That's what I meant, Uh, exactly. And and, and it kind of culminated (laughs) in this uh, this postseason game that he had uh, against the Chargers where they really confounded him, and they used this very uh, unique defense. It had a lot of defensive backs uh, that, that you don't really see, uh, and he was pretty stymied by that uh, in, in that game. He was terrible, he, uh, terrible in that. You're being generous, Neil. He was not good in that game. Right, and, and they lost the game. He went a long period of time without a completion even, uh, and, and they also kind of, you know, as much as you can do, neutralized his, his rushing which maybe you wouldn't expect with playing so many defensive backs. Um, but the improvement that he has shown between last year and this year is across the board. Well, we talked about the categories that you can kind of measure people on with, with Carson Wentz. And there isn't a single passing category uh, that Lamar Jackson hasn't gotten better in this year than he was last year. And then you add in the fact that he's the best rushing quarterback I mean, he's he's on pace to have the best, the most rushing yards by a quarterback in a single season ever. Easily clear of Mike Vick, who previously was the, I think, the only quarterback to gain a thousand yards. That's correct. Yep, and a it's a thirteen-year record. I think it was a thousand fifty-something yards, and he's only like a hundred and fifty away with five to play. I think we're all confident he may break that this week. Yeah, and uh, and and Vick. As great as he was at times, especially we remember some of the, uh, that, that magical 2010 season with the Eagles that he had, he never combined the rushing that, that of the caliber that uh, Lamar Jackson is doing with anything close to this number of uh, this, these passing metrics. Maybe the only season that comes close in terms of combining rushing with efficient passing is Randall Cunningham in 1990, another Eagles season the Eagles have been blessed with a lot of these uh, mobile uh, great passers uh, so yeah I think any anything any praise you can heap on to Lamar Jackson uh, this season and and for the the turn that he's taken the the improvement he's shown is, is warranted and he's probably the MVP I mean I don't know you mentioned Dak Prescott Maybe he he should be in the same conversation for sure, but Dallas is not having anywhere near the season that um, that Baltimore is having, uh, especially recently. Uh, and so, yeah, to me, Lamar Jackson is uh, it, in our quarterback rating system at least. Uh, he passed Patrick Mahomes uh, this week, uh, so, and the Ravens became our Super Bowl favorite this week. So it was a huge week for him. Uh, after that performance that he had against the Rams. So you believe, just to be clear, not forget what you believe, what 538 believes. If the <laughs> season ended right now and the Ravens had to play at Patriots in the AFC Championship game, since you have them the favorites, they must be the favorite in that game. 
how confident are you that Lamar Jackson is going into Foxborough and beating Tom Brady and the Patriots in the AFC Championship game? Yeah, I mean, you know, if I'm if I'm talking for my gut feeling on that, uh, the Patriots have always kind of exceeded the the expectations of statistical systems like the one that that uh, you're using used to predict <laughs> games. Yeah, uh, and and that's been a hallmark of the Patriots. I mean, the Patriots are the great uh, defier of all the things that we think that we know that apply to the other 31 teams because we talk about turnover differential. That's a fluky stat. You can't keep that up year in and year out, especially in terms of takeaways. The Patriots are perennially one of the best, if not the best, turnover uh, uh, differential team in football. And you look at things like converting on third down. You look at uh, all of these things that are supposed to be uh, random beyond a team's control. Yeah, yeah. random. Uh, oh, the other thing is uh, a little stat. Uh, I think it's a little known stat, but it is very predictive of how well you will play, uh, how well you have played and not predictive at all, unless you're the Patriots of how well you will play, but it's a stat called yards per point. So this is a, basically an efficiency stat of how efficiently do you uh, turn yardage gained into points for you, but then make the other team have to gain a lot of yardage to get a single point. Uh, and if you look at that stat, that might be the, the, the number one hidden secret of the Patriots uh, over, over the years is that they always dominate that yards per point differential uh, that, that basically means that the other team is paying a different exchange rate between yardage and point than the I love, I love the way you describe that. So I'm going to I'm going to ask you a question and to get your your opinion because I I'm not the I don't know that much about football and when I when I'm dealing with a sport that I don't know that much I always re, I always revert to what I call base rate forecasting and and I right. just fall back I, I walk away from narratives and I just go back to what the the very simplest data says and if I had to to take my long view. I'm not getting into the weeds on it. I would say, how could you walk away from the Patriots, given all the things that you've said and their base rate of just being good year after year after year? And also, when I see a player like, you know, you talk about Jackson last year, not so good. This year, incredible. I'm leaning heavily on regression to the mean. Even even though we've seen everything at this point, I, I just cannot buy the narrative only because not because I have anything to say about the narrative. I don't. I have no no objections. It's just the data just suggests that. You just can't get get carried away with these stories, and that I would have to say that going forward, you can't expect this kind of performance, and that and that that you're everyone's becoming a little bit overconfident in the Ravens. What do you think? That may be true. I have uh, certainly uh, we have a larger sample by which we can judge the Patriots, uh, and and the sample of one NFL season is always smaller than we think it is. I mean, you think back to this time last year. The Rams and, and the Chiefs were looking unbeatable. You never would expect them to, to struggle uh, the following season. And we've seen the Rams, they're, they're just completely falling apart at this point. And the Chiefs are doing a little better, but they're not the dominant force that they were. Uh, the, the one constant does seem to be the Patriots over the years. But uh, I will say a few things. So first of all, the Ravens do have a better point differential this season by one point uh, than the Patriots do. Uh, and they are one, two in point differential, which as you guys know, from all the sports, those tend, that tends to be the best predictors, at least if you're trying to kind of get a bead on, 
you know, who has been playing well, who's likely to kind of play well uh, going forward and filter out luck. And the other thing is our system of ELO, and we've discussed this before on the show also, is specifically designed to kind of find that sweet spot between recency uh, of performance yeah. and form, I guess, uh, and, and how, how much of your prior do you retain and, and uh, make sure that you're also not overweighting uh, the past uh, at the expense of recent information. So uh, we, we've kind of tuned both the quarterback adjustment rating for that and we've tuned uh, the team ratings for that. And Brady, we talked about how well Jackson's playing. He took over the number one spot in, uh, in our quarterback rating. Brady has been – uh, less good this year. He he ranks 12th mm-hmm. uh, among quarterbacks uh, in, in our current ratings right now uh, among starters. And so I think that that's another area where you're seeing kind of things diverge in different directions. The, the one thing is the Patriots are a, a real throwback to the early era of the Patriots dynasty this season with their defense, the best defense in football uh, so far, depending on any metric that you want to look at, but especially things like expected points uh, and, and really playing one of the best first halves or, or you know, first 10 games of the season, or 11 games uh, of any defense. I think we've seen in sort of the, the analytics era uh, so far. Uh, and so you have to think they will be able to maybe come up with something to at least slow down Lamar Jackson. But then we go back to defense is one of the, the most fluky things in football in terms of, you know, kind of retaining defensive performance going forward. Look at teams like the Bears last year. They've regressed to the mean. They're still good, but they're not world-beating on on defense. Uh, And we see this every year. Some team comes out of nowhere, has an amazing defensive year, and then they revert back uh, to previous form. And maybe the Patriots, because of what we said earlier, they are the, the team that just doesn't seem to regress to the mean. They have figured out and cracked some kind of code where none of the things that usually regress to the mean do for them. Maybe that's the, their, their defense is, is another example of that. Well, Neil, we'd like to thank you for joining us here this morning in Wharton Moneyball. And I love the way your last comment is, it's hard to not regress to the mean. And so any f- yeah. franchise that has been able to do that is extraordinarily impressive. So we've been talking to Neil Payne. Neil's a senior sports writer for 538, a frequent guest both on the air and in studio on the show. Neil, we'd like to thank you this morning for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Sure, I was glad to be there. Well, great. Uh, So this has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have one quarter to go, including Moneyball matchups and lots of other things that have caught our eye in sports. So stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks to our associate producer, Dion Simpkins, for bringing us back from the break. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host and friend this morning, Professor Adi Weiner. Uh, some combination of the two of us, Shane Jensen and Cade Massey, are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. here on Sirius XM 132. You can, of course, join the conversation if you want at one eight four four wharton so, Adi, something I asked you earlier made me think of something that caught my eye about the NBA. About Remember I gave you the example of, like, if someone comes up with something about pricing and no firm is doing it, right. like, why are they being so irrational? Well, here's a question I have to ask you about player usage. 
So there's something in the NBA called player efficiency rating. It's how efficient they are when they're on the court. There's a player for the Knicks. His name's Mitchell Robinson. He's a center. He's fifth in the NBA in player efficiency rating. There's a player for the Clippers, Ivaka Zubash, who's ninth in the NBA. Also turns out to be a center. I've never heard of either of them. Okay, well, the reason why you haven't, by the way, just so you know, is both of them play about 15 minutes a game. So here's my question to you. It's just a broad question. They can look at the same data that I can, that these players have high player efficiency rating, far beyond other players, a lot of other players on the team. Why aren't they played more? So this got me thinking also of the Jason Garrett thing, which goes, I don't use in-game analytics. Okay, well, if you know you have a player that might be worth two extra points per game, why wouldn't you play him more? So I'm just trying to. Can you just give well? A, I mean, there's two issues that immediately come to to mind here. First is they could just be missing it, right? <laughs> you know, that was always an answer. Possible. You know, these are, they should be using them more. The the other reason is probably is that we got the causality wrong. Correct. Which means like, probably, these are big slow centers yeah, who basically can't do much. Yeah, but, and they're probably playing when they're when things are just not that competitive. Which means that you can sort of what they sometimes call garbage time, I guess, in, in basketball. And, and the Knicks are, of course, terrible. So there's a lot of a lot of games where they're just out of it and they're and they're very far behind. And then the 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 backups come in and no one's really paying much attention to them. And they can look very good because no one really cares. Um, so that could be the explanation. How right do you there. think about this as a general principle? Where you know, in some sense, a statistical let's call it equation, mm-hmm. a metric, can suggest. This person deserves more time. Like, how do you think about this broadly, the topic of, I'll call it statistics for optimization, that just because something's got a higher value or something's got even a higher slope, meaning for every dollar I put into this one, I get more than that one, doesn't mean I should keep putting in more forever or even use it. How do you just think about that as well, a statistician? I mean, the real problem, of course, is to recognize that regression models, data analysis, doesn't always tell you cause. And if you interpret them as if they are causal, then you could really get you know make very bad mistakes. So... That's really the problem. Yeah, this is just something that struck me. It just seemed like I was just looking down the player efficiency rings, and of the top 50 players, all of them were playing more than 20 minutes, except for these two guys. And so then I was starting to think, like... Well, they could be good. They could, but maybe. (laughs) As I like to say, you know, correlation is not causation, but it is a good start. uh, Well, without it, you could have no causation because there's no effect. Um, The other question I was going to ask you about was a question you asked Seth Partnow in our 8.30 hour. You asked him a question about isn't essentially the you know the NBA who's in the playoffs kind of over. I was actually I we briefly yeah. talked about this during the break. I've never seen. I understand it's only through about twenty games, but I've never seen a distribution like this. So normally, since some team has to win, some team has to lose. The average is forty one. Right, the average right? is forty one. Yeah. So if you take ten wins on either side of forty one, so from thirty one to fifty one, and you look at the projections now of NBA teams. There's only six teams in the center of the distribution. There's 12 that are projected 51 or greater and 12 projected 31 or less. Let's assume the season ends that way. Isn't that tremendously anomalous to you that you would expect, in some sense, a, a U-shaped distribution? You would never expect that in a reasonably constructed league. So what that says is that this is built in. Essentially, what you're describing is a, is a, is a massive uh, variance. You have very good teams and very bad teams. And that just doesn't happen unless it's a design. 
And that's what I think we're seeing in when the NBA. When you say design, do you mean because of the... Tanking? Uh, <laughs> tanking is the other, is one side. And then the the opposite of tanking is competing. So you have competing or teams. super and, teams. And super teams on, on one hand. And you have tanking teams on the other hand. And then you have a bunch of teams in the middle. Not very many. And that's the point I made with Seth is it just seems that the, the season is over. And he, he said, well, things are more competitive than ever in the sense that there are five, eight teams that could win it. And that's exciting. But we don't need the the season for this. We could just start the two month playoff tomorrow and get moving. So what is happening with the season? The season is really just an exhibition, and it's not even a good exhibition because the players are are being managed, load managed into into rela- relaxing. So what are we doing? I, I agree with you. I think the NBA. And by the way, I don't know if people have heard, but David, uh, not David Stern, Adam Silver, the current commissioner of the NBA is even thinking about changes to the NBA schedule. Like, for example, you may not have heard this over the last week. So one thing he's considering is lowering the number of games and then having, I know this is going to sound strange, but it's true, a soccer-style knockout tournament with all 32 teams in the middle of the season. And when I say that, there'll be a round-robin round where, like, eight groups of four, and Mm -hmm. you know, like the World Cup. So he's actually thinking about reduce. So there'll be a second prize for this. It's not just winning the championship. I'll make this up. Maybe yep. the Golden State Warriors who stink. Maybe by some way they can win this thirty-two team tournament and then they get a prize. It's a way to get people interested in the in the run of the mill average game. The the season is too long relative to deciding who gets to play in the playoffs. The alternative, of course, is to get rid of this model of super teams versus tankers. It's hard to do that, as Seth again t- talked about. There's only three to eight to nine to ten superstars, and you need them to win. It's sort of built into the basketball cake, if you will, to have this sort of configuration. The other potential issue, and one of the reasons why we love the baseball season, even though it's 162 games, and is that the individual players are exciting. They're they're all they're competing against each other for personal metrics. I don't think you see that in basketball. This this personal metric um, uh, race to, to MVPs to you know Cy Young awards, low ERAs, lots of homers makes it exciting. The only you know? thing we're seeing this season, I'll say, obviously there was the couple of seasons where could Russell Westbrook average a triple double, right? And he did, and that mm-hmm. was fantastic and exciting. The one individual race we're seeing this season is. Can James Harden average forty points a game? Right, he's at something like thirty-seven point eight the, the last of, time. Will he break the number of rec- uh, the record for the number of three-point made attempted? That would be he's, another possibility. Right. But I'm saying that's not that exciting no. enough. It's not like will no. you know will Mike Trout hit sixty home runs right. or because, something like that? Because that's ex- I mean, right. or, you know, because what do we do when Harden scores forty, we just say well, he's just a big ball hog. Of course, he scores forty. Right, uh, he's good. He's amazing, but he not doesn't shooting, get anyone else. And he's not shooting fifty percent from the field or no, anywhere and he near. He doesn't it. let anyone else shoot so okay great but Mike Trout bats the same number every year as he does any other year I know it's 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 amazing so another thing that's going on you told me about before the show and you've mentioned it a few times here on Wharton Moneyball is a program that you're doing with students called the NFL Data Bowl could you tell us tell our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball first of all let's just start at the beginning what is the NFL Data Bowl how do what students and how do teams compete? Just what is it? And then I know you have some interesting empirical findings. Let's just right. start with what it is. So last year was the first year that uh, they introduced the NFL. There's this incredible tracking data which isn't public, and so they, last year they made six weeks worth of data public, which tells you exactly what's happening on the field uh, in ten times a second. And so the competition last year was essentially here where they released this data and they and they they asked anyone to essentially write an article. Right. So 
use this data and tell me something about football we don't know. And we had a team of students, undergraduates at Wharton, who were finalists, and they were one of the four teams in the, in the student division, which actually included... but anybody can compete. In, they're different yes, divisions. There, there were two divisions last year. There was the professional division, and there was the student division. But the student included master's and PhD pr- students as well. So we actually had a, a, an undergraduate team that was, that was one of the four finalists. They didn't win, although um, the, team, the teams that win, win were, were master's and PhD students from, from uh, fr- from Simon Fraser, um, and we actually had another finalist in the professional division, which were former um, PhD students. Samir Deshpande was sure. a, um, was a winner last year, but that was writing an article, try to explain something about, particularly about receiver routes. This year, they they set it up as a prediction contest, and so the, this has to do with what they did was they they gave you the same, not the same data, they gave you the, all the positions, locations, velocities, angles, uh, accelerations of all the players on the field at the time of a handoff to a running back. And the question was, can you predict how many yards the running back will get? And they set it up as a not just... Let me just be clear on the data. We know for a fact that every one of these is running plays. So we're not trying to predict when a team is going to run versus not. We know it's a running play. We know down distance. I assume we know who the running back is, the team. We know who is on the field. And then after the snap, we know the location and the motion. Not the snap, at the time of the handoff. That's oh, what we're time, given. Sorry, the time of the point, handoff. The time of the handoff. That's right. So okay. just at the time of the handoff, oh, you good, have everything that's going on. So you have all the peripherals, anything that could be measured before the play started, and exactly where everybody is at the time of the handoff. And the goal of this, and we had Mike Lopez on, who Absolutely. was with the NFL, who kind of explained this. The goal of this contest is to help let the public help figure out what is um, what can be separated as due to the running back and what is kind of part of the configuration. Now, it's still football. It's still complicated. But the basic idea is at the time of the handoff, maybe the, the configurations of the defense and the offense have created space for that running back to get 7, 8, and 10 yards. It's really not due to the running back. It's just due to the what was right. given to him at the time of the handoff. And so the idea would be to use that tracking data to forecast what's going to, going to happen in the actual run. And that's that's the point of it. And the, the, st- the strategy which made it interesting was, first of all, the way it was set up, where they gave you two years of data, 2017 and 2018. There's a, there's a semi-test data set, which is everything that's happened in 2019 up until now, which isn't part of the competition, but just prudence a leaderboard. And the actual competition will be judged in the last five games of the season. So this is the way they've sort of set it up. And well, let me the- ask you, let me start with the beginning. Let me just start with some basic stuff. Are you happier as an academic that this is a prediction task as opposed to something that could be, you could argue last year might have been more subjective, you know, yes. do I like the paper or not? This is, I mean, I assume they're going to use mean squared error, which is you have a certain number of wrong, well, let me ask you. Mm, they're not, actually. Okay, using, so they're, they're, let me just let tell our listeners what that means. Yeah. So yeah. what I was thinking they would do is, let's imagine there ends up being 5,000, 10,000 running plays the last five games of the season, hundreds or whatever the number is. You know the actual number of yards, you know the prediction, you take observed minus predicted, square it, and add it up over all the runs. That would be mean squared error. And you're saying that's, that's right. not what no. they're doing. Okay. okay, They're forcing you to produce a, a complete cumulative probability distribution for every for every play. So they want you to ah. produce a probability that the run will be less than X for all X, or X between minus 99 to plus 99. All right, so let's just be clear. So let's imagine there's a five-yard run. The question now becomes where in my distribution that's for right. that particular play 
is that is run, five yards? Is it in the is it in the the high probability region or is it in the low probability region? How much probability are you putting greater than five? How much probability are you putting less than five? And so what they're using is a measure of how close your cumulative distribution is to well, I don't get too technical, yeah. but the indicator function uh, um, that's that's. Uh, that's created by the actual run. So what this does is it forces you to really think about all the possibilities, which is a which I love that it's not simply a, a prediction contest, but the prediction is on the probability distribution. I think that is a really a, a significant and interesting way to construct the contest. But um, but the second question you ask, but I'm not so happy with it, with it being a prediction contest because we've actually dug into the data. And what we've observed yeah, at this point... Yeah, what have point, you found? What we actually have observed is that... Think about it is... Um, think, the way I like to think about it is there's lots of, of information available at the time before the play begins. What down, what distance, which the teams are, um, how, what yard line you're on, what the, t- the score, all these pieces of information. And these are the things that are used, for example, by football outsiders to help evaluate how good a runner is. All the things that's available outside of the actual play. You can use things like the configurations of the the offense and defense, the number of defenders in the box. All these things have nothing to do with the tracking information. And what we found is that information by itself is extremely predictive. You get a lot of the predictive value not using any of the tracking data. Now, the tracking data itself is predictive. There's, There's information in it. But on a kind of an effect size basis. Yeah, that, you know, Mr. Effect yes. Size, how an big effect an effect size, are we talking about here? It's very small. So uh, it's hard to measure because this cumulative distance is not so easy. But if I, if I convert it into, say, squared error or, or even just yeah. absolute error, if I simply predict with the median, the typical error is about, is about four, plus or minus four yards. If I use just down in distance... And all the information that I can possibly use, but not, I the, get, tracking but data, not right. the tracking data, I can get it down to about 2.8. And if I use the tracking data, and if you just look at what the, the best competitors are on the leaderboard right now, they're getting it down to about 2.4. So it's just not, and this is in yards, they actually have a different way of measuring it to divide by 200 uh, to get what they're looking at. So it's 0. 0.125, 0.0125 is the number they're seeing. But what I'm saying is from an effect size basic basis, the tracking data is just not that valuable. Now, that leads to the final, my final punchline is I believe the winner of this con- contest is, is a mixture between decently good and very lucky. I see. Well, that, so that's okay, but you're saying just in some sense that there's some sort of Resi- there's enough residual That's variation right. left that it won't just be who's the best at generating some model. It's just going to be there might you got to be good. So you, if you're not in the top ten percent of modelers, right. you're not even in this. But within that top ten percent, you got to be the one who's That's lucky. Really interesting. And so we talked. I talked to Ron Yurko, who who's written a terrific paper. He's been on our show looking at uh, tracking data, and he basically said to me straight off when that the point of the handoff, there's still too much randomness. Well, I, I'm shocked, actually, that you said how many – what you said the mean squared error is right now. I mean, I was shocked. I would assume you can predict this within – I'm making it up – plus or minus a yard, plus or minus two, and you're saying yeah, – right. So I'm, 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 I'm totally miscalibrated as to how well you can predict it. Well, while we're on the topic of the NFL, first of all, thank you for telling us about the NFL Data Bowl. It's very exciting for our students. Let's go to something we enjoy every week during the NFL season, our Moneyball matchups. Moneyball matchups. 
You know when uh, you know Adi when that music playing. It's getting me ready for the NFL, and of course, given tomorrow's Thanksgiving Day, there's lots of NFL action. But since there's only two of us in the studio today, we actually are joined by our co-hosts, one of our hosts of Wharton <laughs> Business Daily. There's now three of us, and that huge sports fan, a huge sports fan, Dan Loney, the host of Wharton Business Daily. So uh, for, a, for a minute there, I thought the bus just ran over me. <laughs> no. Only two people. Well, there yeah. were two there for were, the first hour and fifty minutes, but now we have you joining us here for Moneyball Match. By the way, here's my game of the week. Take Stephen F. Austin plus the 27 and a half at Duke. Yeah. You can you can do really well on that bet right now. You could just take Stephen F. Austin on the money line and you yeah. do pretty yeah. well yeah. on that one. That's right. So, Dan, um, first of all, thank you for joining us. Yeah. We have a, a matter of fact, this is a great week to be talking about the NFL because there's a bunch of amazing games this week. Yeah. Why don't you start us off? The way we always like to do it is uh, which game caught your eye? Why? And obviously, we have some point spreads. Who do you like against the spread, and why? Well, what games caught your eye? So, I, I always love the, the the Thanksgiving Day games. I think it's phenomenal. And, and when you start out with Bears Lions, which is one of the traditional matchups, I think back to the day that that one Thanksgiving Day game where Dave Williams returned the kickoff to start overtime for a touchdown for the Bears to beat the Lions that day. That's not the one necessarily that I that catches my eye. I'm actually more interested about the Saints and the Falcons right now. Because of the fact it'll be in Atlanta, and the Falcons have not played well, but they've shown a little bit of a spark, and I'm wondering whether or not they can actually go. They, I think we would expect them to cover, but maybe they can. They can rattle the cage of the New Orleans Saints on 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 Thanksgiving night. I would have thought that until my cousin, who's got his son lives in Atlanta. You know, this is my Tampa Bay roots. Uh-huh. Um, he was in Atlanta last week, and Tampa Bay went in there and routed the Falcons. Yeah. I would have, I would have had more excitement about that game if Atlanta had shown anything against the Buccaneers, who are yeah. not a great team either. Yeah, and and of course, I'm going to be interested in the Eagles and the Dolphins, being an Eagles fan, and of hoping, course. hoping that the Eagles will be able to turn things around this week and. Have their have the receivers are terrible, so but, they should be able yeah. to beat well, the Dolphins. We'll get to that interesting. By the way, yeah. thanks to our producer Matt Dash, just put something on the screen. Um, I had forgotten that they played. Obviously, they're in the same division. I know they play twice. Yep. The Falcons beat the Saints twenty six to nine in yep. New Orleans this yep. year. Yep. So that's got to be worth something. Yep. So, Adi, what, what game has caught okay, your eye? So, obviously, I don't know. There's obviously, but the, <laughs> I would imagine the big game of the week is the 49ers versus the Ravens. These are the two top two of the three top teams in football by any measure. By any measure, and I, I'm going to piggyback off the observations. My my ignorant observations I made earlier in our show, which is I don't know that much about football, so I regress. So I think that we have we are too high on the Ravens. That, that that's generally my thought. I don't I don't disagree with with m- most people's assessments. I just think that, for example, Massey Peabody's movements there they have them at I think a power ranking of over eleven and mm-hmm. almost a three point favorite against New England and three points. I, I think that that they've overreacted. That's just my my general statistical yeah. sense. They've overreacted. I would still take the Ravens to win. But I would take the, the San Francisco Niners with the points. Okay, so then let me ask you, as somebody that is just a sports fan, <laughs> where and how much do you throw in the fact of a West Coast team coming east to play in the Eastern Time Zone at 1 p.m. on a Sunday? Well, you know, it's interesting because one of the things I know about, I've talked to the way they manage this, it, what, they off, what they paradoxically don't do is they don't get there early. They get there yeah. late. Yeah. I thought I thought that was right. interesting. They don't try to acclimate. Yeah. They 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 do their acclimation at home. In other words, they they shift their schedules yeah. at home, and they arrive the actually the night before or the day before, yeah. and then they play. So I think they're they, I think that the 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 neurologists, the, the sleep scientists, the the training experts <laughs> that they have hired to do this know their jobs, and I don't give it that much credit. Okay. I right. would have in the past, but not anymore. So let me uh, talk about a game that caught my eye in the last minute or so we have here. 
Um, we actually have two first-place teams playing each other this week, but no one thinks we do. <laughs> the New England Patriots yeah. at the Houston Texans. The Texans are winning their division right now. Now, I'm. it's the worst 10-1 team I think I've ever seen in my life. I, I just don't think this Patriot team is that great. I think they can... I, matter of fact, here's the dream scenario for me as a Patriot hater. I hope that the Kansas City Chiefs stay in the four slot. I hope the Patriots are in the one slot. And I'm going to tell you something. Even though it's it's, it's postseason Andy Reid, I'm thinking Kansas City can go in there, New England, and beat them. I'll, I'm not a big fan. I'll disagree with you slightly. It's the worst 10-1 offense I've that's seen. True. That's their, their defense true. Is, their defense is pretty strong, and Houston is, is kind of up and down right now as well. Well, the good news is the Patriot offense is not that good, and Houston's defense is not that good, so I think it's strength versus strength. There's lots of lots of good games this week. So this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. I want to thank Dan Loney for joining us for our Wharton Moneyball matchup segment, and obviously stay tuned for him on Wharton Business Daily coming up in the next two hours. I'd like to thank my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner, professor of statistics. I'd like to thank our guests this morning, Seth Partnow and Neil Payne. And of course, always like to thank our producer, Matt Datz, for keeping us on guard here and running the show. And of course, to our assistant producer, Zach Drapkin, and of course, to our associate producer, Dion Simpkins. So this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball between now and next week. Enjoy your sports. We'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball.